Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. WDET is going to present Season 2 of the Twisted Storytellers podcast. Detroit's most dynamic storyteller, Satori Shakur, is your host. And this new season is a compilation of uproariously funny real-life stories about how our families and diverse cultures shape our experience. Each tale was told before a live audience at the Wright Museum in Detroit and at the monthly live event there. Episode one is available now, and you can subscribe wherever podcasts are available or listen online at WDET.org. Also, today at 2 p.m. following Culture Shift, teacher, students, and education advocates are going to discuss the challenges facing Michigan's education system and what can be done to turn our schools around. It's Policy Meets the People, education at 2 p.m. today, right here on WDET. Up first today, in the years after September 11, 2001, we have discussed a lot as a nation what it means to be Muslim in America. We have struggled with Islamophobia on large and small scales. Think about the debate over whether a mosque should be allowed to open near the site of the World Trade Center or whether it's right to question a religion that encourages women to cover their hair or face. And we've even wrestled through the greater sort of nuance of jingoism right here in southeast Michigan when discussing the racist legacy of Dearborn Mayor Orville Hubbard in a community now populated with many Arab Americans and Muslims, or when discussing the significance of a majority Muslim city council in the city of Hamtramck, or a young Muslim man who is now running for governor in our state as a Democrat. The strength of our Arab and Muslim population in southeast Michigan shines a direct light on both our greatnesses and our weaknesses. Our sense of community and culture juxtaposed with our lingering issues with racism. Our incredible Mediterranean restaurants that are second to none juxtaposed with a resistance to change and to try new things. Our struggle with Islamophobia in modern America is the subject of a new book from a local professor. Khaled Beydoun, professor of law at University of Detroit Mercy, is the author of American Islamophobia, Understanding the Roots and Rise of Fear. That's where we begin the conversation today. Khaled Beydoun, welcome to Detroit Today. Yeah, it's great to be here again. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's discuss the title of this book, American Islamophobia, Understanding the Roots and Rise of Fear. I, I really like the way that's phrased, and I like that it ends uh, on the word fear, which I think is the thing that that drives Islamophobia in the United States. And that didn't start on September 11th, 2001, but certainly there was a cultural turn in this country, I think, on that date. Yeah, so 9-11 uh, in the book is effectively the starting point of when Islamophobia becomes robust, it becomes structural. But exactly, and that's why the word, you know, roots, uh, you know, are showcased in the title because it demonstrates the idea that even though 9-11 intensifies Islamophobia, that we have this longstanding, centuries-old, um, you know, culture of not only fear, but malice, right? Mm -hmm. So more than just fear, malice, uh, animus, ignorance, and so on. Um, that is really just embedded in the American imagination about Islam and Muslims. And, you know, one of the things that that uh, that I think also really drives Islamophobia 
uh, and this is true of of all forms of of bigotry, but especially I think with Islamophobia, it's ignorance of what you are actually afraid of, right? Uh, we are fed all kinds of myths and untruths, really, about Islam that make us think it is fundamentally a different religion from Christianity or uh, other kinds of religions, and that there is something about it that poses a threat to uh, to white people, to America, to all of the things that that uh, that we that we sort of uh, see this fear rise out of uh, in 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 this country, and and that ignorance, I think, um, is is harder to fight, I guess, than the fear. Maybe I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, I, I think you're right. I think it's 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 sort of driven uh, by ignorance, but the fear is closely tied to that, that ignorance, mm-hmm. and it's more than just uh, discursive. It's more than just you know individuals or you know institutions adopting this ignorant perspective of what Islam is, and sort of the driving objective of the book, the motive, if you will, is to also demonstrate that legal institutions, that legal institutions for a long time have you know embraced this idea. That Islam is not just a religion, like you've seen, like you framed. It's it's a civilization. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a it's a rival sort of political ideology. Um, it's a it's a menace that is threatening the American way of life and American values and so on. So it's it's these stereotypes, these misrepresentations that are driving uh, not only how people think, but in fact driving how law is shaped in response to policing and grappling with uh, with Muslims. Yeah. Um, uh- we see, of course, today, I think, yet another iteration of Islamophobia, and that is fueled uh, in part by the president of the United States, uh, the things that he's done since he's been elected, uh, but also the way that he ran his campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, talk about sort of what is what's changing or intensifying uh, uh, about Islamophobia now versus 2001. I mean, if anything, it seems like it's being ratcheted higher. Yeah, so th- there's there's two sort of modern, you know, kind of tent posts when we can think about Islamophobia and the war on terror. We have 9-11, obviously. In the aftermath of 9-11, we have uh, restructuring of the state counterterror apparatus. We have the enactment of really strident and sweeping policy. But then we have 11-9, right? 11-9 is the, uh, you know, obviously the day that uh, Trump won. And it's critical to think about the two years before he won as... Um, so Trump, you know, diabolical in many ways, mm-hmm. uh, observes the fact that this country, you know, is fearful, is ignorant, um, uh, towards Islam. So he converts all that fear. He converts all that animus into a full fledged campaign strategy, you know, talking about the idea that Islam hates us when he's mm-hmm. speaking to Anderson Cooper, mm-hmm. um, you know, proposing the travel ban really early on in his campaign. So, the the eleven nine moment, the Trump administration uh, effectively, you know, capitalizes on this full fledged, explicit, brazen, bellicose uh, embrace of Islamophobia, and then you know makes it clear cut um, and again vivid and stark um, administrative policy. Yeah, so, and, and, and he he sort of walks into you point out in the book, and I want to read a little bit <clears throat> of a passage that I think makes this really clear. Donald Trump sort of appears in the middle of uh, a cultural dynamic that makes what he's saying, makes what he's talking about doing 
a lot easier for people uh, to swallow. It's not as if he pops out of thin air and and sort of introduces this concept uh, out of nothing. I want to read a, a short passage uh, that, that really demonstrates that. You say, six months before Donald Trump announced his presidential run, Clint Eastwood's modern wartime drama, American Sniper, hit American theaters nationwide. That film, starring Hollywood heartthrob Bradley Cooper in the lead role and based on a true story, centers on one soldier's exploits and precision as a sniper in the Iraq War. This film was released well after the war on terror became formal state policy, but it provides a compelling case study that illustrates the resonance of the core ideas uh, and binary seeded by Orientalism and the clash of civilizations. American Sniper would become emblematic of this new era of American Islamophobia and a lasting and lurid representation of the deep and robust connections between Islamophobia and the systems that came before it. Uh, that clash of civilizations, that's the, the title uh, of, the, of the chapter that, uh, that you're talking about. That's a very powerful dynamic that, as you point out, Donald Trump sort of walks in and says, hey, I'm going to pick up the mantle here and whip this up and get elected. But he didn't invent it. No, no, not, not at all. So the clash of civilizations, this worldview that, you know, the West, the United States is sort of, you know, on this collision course with Islam and, you know, effectively going to engage in this apocalyptic war uh, is embraced full-fledged by the Bush administration, mm -hmm. right? It becomes mm -hmm. the driving ideology uh, after 9-11. Now, the Obama administration, which was a bit of an aberration, Obama rhetorically was saying all the right things, embraces a sort of tolerant, accepting disposition mm -hmm. toward uh, Islam and toward Muslims. And he, and he, it was tough for him because people <laughs> thought he was Muslim, right? right? So you right. you had that coming from the right as well. Um, but, you know, Trump says, you know, heck with all of this. I'm going to do away with all of this, you know, sort of, uh, you know, laudatory rhetoric and language. And I'm going to call a spade what a spade is mm -hmm. and effectively deliver to what my base wants uh, and call it a clash of civilizations. Mm -hmm. And his rhetoric really, you know, inflames that sort of idea. Um, it mobilizes hate mongers and bigots on the ground. Uh, and then in the same way it has with white supremacy and anti-black racism, it's a similar sort of dynamic sure. and with xenophobia as well. So he calls it a clash of civilizations, and the policies he enacts afterwards uh, are in line with that sort of uh, narrative and framing. Mm -hmm. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Khaled Beydoun. He's an associate professor of law at the University of Detroit Mercy, specializes in national security, civil rights, and the formation of Arab and Muslim American legal identity. He's the author of a new book titled American Islamophobia, Understanding the Roots and Rise of Fear. We are talking about that book. We are talking about Islamophobia what role it plays uh, in America, and we're going to talk also about what role it plays here in Southeast Michigan. Think of uh, the number of people who have roots in the Middle East uh, who claim Muslim as their religion who live here in Southeast Michigan. Think of the number of communities uh, that are defined in many ways by Muslim culture or Middle East uh, culture. Uh, what does Islamophobia play? What role does Islamophobia play here in uh, Southeast Michigan uh, with all of those uh, dynamics going on around us. If you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call. Tell us what you think about this brand 
of bigotry. Uh, tell us what you think uh, it means nationally. Tell us what you think it means locally. Uh, 313-577-1019 is always the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, uh, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Khaled, before we get to the phones, uh, I, I want to talk about the relationship between Islamophobia and other forms of, of bigotry. It's, it's obviously not the only thing that we see here uh, in America, but I think there's often confusion about those relationships, and, and sometimes— uh, I think you see people say, well, that's different than being against uh, or, or being racist against uh, African-Americans, or that's different mm-hmm. than being anti-Semitic. Uh, and it's a, you know, it's yet another form of the othering, I guess, that uh, that we see take place. Yeah, so in the book, and, you know, part, a big reason why I wanted to write this book is because, I, you know, I'm a critical race theorist. I, I focus closely on race and race's relationship with the law. Um, and in my, my research, I discovered really, you know, really vividly that uh, Islamophobia is an emanation of white supremacy, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? That the formative policies that were put in place centuries ago uh, that effectively restricted seeing Muslim identity as reconcilable with Americanness was driven by white supremacy in the same way that the Muslim ban today is driven by the idea that we want to, you know, sort of keep out these brown and black Muslims from coming in the United States because we want to maintain, we want to make America, make America great again. Mm-hmm. Right. Which we know is a <laughs> code <exp-> for <laughs> exactly <laughs> all kinds of really bad stuff. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it, it's key to sort of identify that Islamophobia is anchored in white supremacy in the same way that other forms of racism uh, and animus are. So it's not necessarily distinct from anti-black racism mm-hmm. um, or from anti-Semitism. For much of this country's history, Jews were uh, restricted from being deemed as white right. on grounds of their religious identity. And that's true for Muslims today. So um, I think it's key to make that connection that, you know, sort of, uh, you know, white supremacy and that objective is what fueled Islamophobia during its early stages and again still today. Yeah. And... But what is it that makes it possible to try to separate Islamophobia from racism or anti-Semitism? I mean, what, yeah. it, it does seem like that's an effective narrative that, that gets spun uh, by some folks. So, so I think people say it's distinct because Muslim identity, and this is sort of the foundational definition of Islamophobia, right? That Muslim identity is tied to the presumption of terrorism, that any manifestation, any expression of Muslim identity sort of conjures up this idea that the individual might be associated with terrorism in some way. So people don't see it as racism because they feel they feel that discrimination, policing uh, of Muslim identity is carrying forward this sort of national security mandate or objective, mm-hmm. right? So it's rational in that way, um, even though, you know, we know that, you know, the Constitution, the First Amendment of the Constitution guarantees everybody the right to freely exercise their religion. Sure. And that, that conflation with Muslim identity and terrorism is inherently bigoted in the same way that we think that black identity is tied to criminal deviance, mm-hmm. Latino mm-hmm. identity is tied to, you know, um, undocumented status and mm-hmm. so on. So those stereotypes, um, and, and again, I closely examined the, uh, the statistics, um, are really belied, right? They're disproven by the stats. Yeah. 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Khaled Beydoun about Islamophobia in America. Stay with us, and stay with us on the phones. Masabi in Dearborn, Jim in Pontiac, Brandon in Detroit, Abdul in Southfield. Uh, we will get to you next. Also, remember, if you have to miss any of today's show, you don't have to miss out on the conversation. If you go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts, you can download and subscribe to Detroit Today. Take us with you and listen when you are ready. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Khaled Beydoun. He's an associate professor of law at University of Detroit Mercy, specializes in national security, civil rights, and the formation of Arab and Muslim American legal identity. He's the author of a new book titled American Islamophobia, Understanding the Roots and Rise of Fear. We are talking about Islamophobia. We're talking about bigotry more generally and the roles they play here in Southeast Michigan as well as nationwide. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call and tell us what you think the role that uh, Islamophobia is playing in our community or in our country. As always, uh, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Brandon in Detroit. Brandon, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thank you. Uh-huh. Hi, yeah, I think uh, an important part of the conversation, too, is kind of the distinction between uh, Muslims themselves and Islam, the, the system of belief. Um, and this is kind of informed by my time. Uh, I spent a little bit of time in Jerusalem and the West Bank. I spent some time in Buffalo with the refugee population, mainly from the Middle East, and now I live here in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And um, Muslims themselves, like, they're some of my favorite people to talk to in the society because I take my religion very seriously, and so do they. But the belief system of Islam, I think, is is kind of equated maybe to communism, where, like, um, anyone can be a communist, and same with, same with uh, Islam, like, anyone can be a Muslim and believe in, believe in that, but that doesn't mean that the idea system is good. And that's where I would equate it, where, like, uh, I believe the the idea system of Islam uh, has a lot of problems with it, and I don't believe it's worth believing. Hmm. But um, that does not mean that I don't like Muslims themselves. So, I believe so that they, yeah, yeah, uh, Brandon, that's a really that's a really interesting uh, point. But I but I want to give you a chance to expand on it a little. Can you tell yeah. me what it is about Muslim beliefs that you find problematic? Yeah, I think eventually, like me myself, I'm a strong Christian. And um, eventually people will tend to drift towards the hero of their faith. So as a Christian, my hero of my faith is Jesus, and so we try to become more like him. And the hero of, of Islam is Muhammad, and uh, people tend to become more like him the more that they study and the more that they become ingrained into the belief system. Mm-hmm. And that's just, a, that's just a poor role model for the, the violence and then also just some of the, the moral lapses that he had. And um, I think as people tend to uh, become more committed in their belief system and as they become a little bit more educated as well, uh, and they can start reading in Arabic and those things, a lot of Muslims actually haven't read the Quran because they don't know Arabic or uh, they weren't literate in their own country. 
And so as they get that, that's when a lot of people start to radicalize a little bit more, mm-hmm. is that they bec- start to become more like Muhammad. Yeah. And that's... Um, uh, Brandon, that's Brandon, I really appreciate the call and the, and the comments. And, and even though I would count myself as uh, someone who disagrees uh, with your analysis, I appreciate that you're listening and uh, and that you wanted to be part of the conversation here. Khaled Beydoun, I'll, I'll leave it to you to to respond to what Brandon is saying there, both about Islam and and also about Muhammad. I mean, I, th- I think this is exactly the kind of mm-hmm. misinformation uh, that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, and I, th- I think Brandon has every right to, um, you know, choose and practice the religion that he wants, and he should also, you know, extend that same right to Muslims who have a radically different view of their faith and the Prophet Muhammad, peace and, peace and blessings upon him, than he does. I think that... Um, yeah, his characterization of, you know, uh, I guess, you know, hero sort of reverence and, um, you know, his, um, you know, assailment on um, the Prophet Muhammad's uh, character, it seems that it's driven by, you know, misrepresentations of uh, of the faith. Yeah, the, the, the similarities are between Muhammad and Jesus, the similarities between uh, Islam and Christianity, I think, are the things that stand out to me. And I guess I'm sort of scratching my head a little bit about the idea that they're somehow in in conflict. You know what Brandon is referring to there in terms of Muhammad in terms of Muhammad and violence, for instance, is one of the things he referenced. No, not, not really to be honest with you. And I think I think it's it's critical to also identify that, you know, Jesus is a central <laughs> figure in Islam. In, in Islam, a, sure. Exactly. In a primary prophet uh, in the faith as well, um, so th- there isn't that binary that you got to choose between the, you know these two right. uh, you know individuals. You can embrace both, and yeah. in the case of Christians, they can embrace one. I think that you know, for me as a law scholar, I'm more sort of um, you know in tune with the First Amendment, the Free Exercise Clause, and you know, Brandon has every right uh, to dislike Islam. He has every right to have negative views of it. It's part of his right, uh, you know, set of rights as an American citizen. Yeah, uh, but he just has to honor that individuals who see things differently than he does. Yeah. Brandon, again, thanks very much for listening and for calling in. Let's go to Abdul in Southfield. Abdul, welcome to Detroit today. Abdul, I think you're going to need to turn your radio down, bud. <laughs> I turned it all the way down. Okay, Good morning. Thanks. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I am American Muslim. I'm a black man born in this world, practiced Christianity at my young age. Assalamu alaikum to you, brother. Um, you right. know, just it was so many, so much said. So I got to go to Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. The Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam never was a violent, never was a person who unjustly killed anyone. Actually, we have a saying in Islam. Allah says in the Quran, if you kill one person, it's like you killed the whole humanity. But if you save one person, it's like you saved the whole humanity. Hmm. We believe in Islam. Isa ibn Maryam, Jesus. We understand his plight as a prophet, more than people in Christianity. You know, so I think it's, you know, he has his own belief on how he feels. That's what Islam does. Islam gives you the, 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 the right to be able to believe what you want to believe. Mm-hmm. We can't tell you what to believe. But you got to get information. Information turned me into a Muslim. Information hmm. turned me into a Muslim. Not no radical. Every, in every religion, there are people who have evil tendencies. The people who blew up the, 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 the building in Oklahoma. I'm quite sure they were Christians. 
Yeah. You know, so we can't judge people by a few people's actions. And so, Islam is probably the best thing for our society, so, if you really want to be truthful. Abdul, I'm, I'm curious, uh, you're African-American and Muslim. Can you talk just a little about uh, the way in which uh, bigotry, I mean, in some ways you're a double target, I guess, of of the kind well, of uh, bigotry that exists in America. Can you talk about how you how you manage that? I manage that with Islam. Islam manages that. The teachings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that's what keeps me at bay. Hmm. I got a wife that wears a hijab. I got a daughter that's named Kamara and Jinnah. And it's, you know, I have to be on my P's and Q's about that. But yet and still, Islam keep me, keep me at, at bay. You know, but this racism thing, Stephen, that ain't going nowhere. Right. You know, they stand with all racism ain't never went nowhere. Yeah. It's been here. Yeah. And they used to use Christianity as a racism thing. They enslaved people with Christianity. I remember when you couldn't even read the Bible. Right. But it was a religion for the white man. Mm. It wasn't a religion for everybody else. Yeah. But Islam, we have a brother just took Shahada. Two weeks ago, a white man at the masjid. So don't don't go with that racism and Islam. <laughs> Islam is not racist. Yeah, Abdul, I really appreciate uh, the call and and the comments. Uh, that that dual uh, existence and and the dual bigotry that you face. I think you talk a lot in the book. Uh, there's an entire chapter, in fact, yeah. uh, about that. Yeah. So you know. Uh, Abdul didn't specifically address it, but in the book, um, you know, I spent a lot of time talking about how, you know, Muslims aren't only Arab, Muslims mm-hmm. aren't only Middle Eastern, mm-hmm. um, you know, highlighting Abdul's point that, you know, anybody can be a Muslim. You can be a white Muslim. You can clearly be a black Muslim. Uh, and black Muslims are still the biggest plurality, the biggest population of Muslims still today. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a consequence, a consequence of that identity, uh, they're simultaneously facing Islamophobia on one hand and then, you know, structural and systemic anti-black violence and racism on the other. On the other, yep. yeah. Uh, again, Abdul, thanks very much uh, for the call and the comments. Uh, let's go to Alex in Hamtramck. Alex, welcome to Detroit today. Hey, how's it going? Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so uh, there's a lot I could say in this subject. I'm going to try to be quick. Mm-hmm. Um, long story short, I you know, take my faith very seriously as a Christian, and so that being said, Personally, I find myself to have a, a lot more worldview connections with the Muslims that I do know, uh, many more perhaps than someone who might look a lot like me, but uh, you know, be more of a liberal hipster type. So, so that being said, I, you know, my worldview and a Muslim's worldview, many of them I know, there's just a lot more connection there. That being said, I, I think what does make Islamophobia, which I do not excuse whatsoever, uh, a bit distinct from the other forms of intolerance, racism that that this country has you know been been plagued with, is that in Muslim countries, in Islam, for many Muslims, there's a significant significant worldview divide uh, between traditional Muslim ideology and uh, that of a more Western liberal democracy. For hmm. example. You know, in, in Islamic countries, it is illegal. In many Islamic countries, it is illegal to to convert. Uh, it is illegal to commit certain sexual acts that we 
uh, in many ways are growing to, to celebrate right. in this country that, that I don't. But I guess that being said, again, I do not excuse Islamophobia, not a fan of the new alt-right movement. Right. But what does make it distinct, I think, from other forms of racism is that in Islam, for many Muslims, not all, there's, there's a large uh, diversity of thoughts. Right, Alex. Alex, I appreciate I appreciate the call and the comments. I want to give uh, Khaled Badoun a, a chance to to respond to that. I think what Alex is getting at there is that there is difference, right? Uh, that that uh, there are things about uh, Islam that uh, are different from <clears throat> from other religions, but that that's not you know a legitimate basis for for bigotry. Yeah, I mean, clearly, what what separates Christianity from Judaism, from Hinduism, from Buddhism, from Islam is you know distinct beliefs, and it's fine to have those distinct beliefs. Mm-hmm. I, I think I so I would caution Alex and any listener listening in right now to sort of look at governments, right, specific nation states as being emblematic or representative of the faith, right? Nation states, governments are always mm-hmm. going to manipulate and exploit mm-hmm. whether it's political ideology or religion to serve their interests. So no government is an adequate or reflective representation of a faith. You shouldn't look at Saudi Arabia and say Islam is this way because Saudi Arabia is doing X, Y, and Z. Right? You shouldn't say that you know Buddhism is this way because Burma or, uh, or Myanmar is persecuting Rohingya Muslims at an alarming rate, mm-hmm. and Buddhism is this way. So nation states are not reflective, are not representative of faiths. And I think that we should look at Muslim Americans maybe as representations of the faith. How how can Muslim Americans thrive and flourish in a space where they do have rights, theoretically speaking, mm-hmm. where they can freely exercise their faith? Well, I mean, if you think about it, uh, South Africa was uh, and is a majority Christian nation, at least among its, its white population, uh, when it was a nation that practiced apartheid, nobody said, well, that's Christianity for you, right? Yeah. Uh, that's why we shouldn't trust Christians. Uh, and, and again, there's this uh, this double standard that, as you point out, is driven by white supremacy that that treats something like South Africa very different than mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia. Uh, again, point. yeah, go ahead. No, it's it's, it's a great point. Like I, <laughs> I I wouldn't claim that you know. Uh, Colonial France or England is represent is representative <laughs> of, of Christianity, Christianity, right? Or South Africa is representative of Christianity, and so on. Yeah, I think it's a bad sort of uh, baseline to move from. Yeah. Uh, again, Alex, thanks very much for the call and the uh, the comments. Ed, Ed in Detroit, you're up next on Detroit Today. Go ahead. As as uh, always, a wonderful uh, uh, subject. Been Thank discussed. you. Mm-hmm. Um, an earlier call, I had dealt with what I originally called to deal with, but I, if I could, I'd like to make two very quick points. Uh-huh. One, Islam has been present in what became the United States since at least the 1600s. Mm-hmm. Many of the slaves brought to this hemisphere by the English, Spanish, Portuguese, French, and others were, in fact, Muslims, and often secretly practiced the faith until sometimes they forgot it mm-hmm. and became Christians, but, but not all of them did. And the second point is, if India had not been partitioned in the late 40s, India would have more Muslims than all the Arab states combined. Today's Pakistan, Bangladesh, and India reflects that. Hmm. The 
if you want to examine what is Islam in the world today, look to the countries of the East, Indonesia, India, Pakistan. There are far more Muslims in those countries than in the Arab lands. Yeah, that's interesting. There may be as many Muslims in Europe as there are in some of the Arab countries. Ed, that's a really interesting. Uh, that's a really interesting point. Thanks very much for the call and the comments, uh, Khaled Beidou. And you know, we've got a lot of really interesting mm-hmm. uh, angles that people are interested in talking about here. Yeah, I think Ed might have read my book, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> one of the chapters begins with how the, the first Muslim communities were, in fact, um, you know. Um, organized and comprised of enslaved Africans, slaves, right? right? Exactly, yeah. 15 to 30 percent of the of slaves in the antebellum South, um, like Ed says, continue to practice Islam when they when they were, um, you know, bonded to plantations. And that's an important chapter uh, to kind of highlight to show that, you know, like echoing Ed, that um, Muslims are new to this country. Mm-hmm. The this, this stereotype that Muslims are foreign, recent immigrants and so on, um, again, is not the truth. And there's important histories that we need to be mindful of, not only as Muslim Americans, but 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 as Americans at large. That's right. Okay, Khaled Beydoun, Associate Professor of Law at University of Detroit Mercy, specializes in national security, civil rights, the formation of Arab and Muslim American legal identity. Author of the new book titled American Islamophobia, Understanding the Roots and Rise of Fear. Thanks, as always, for being with us on yeah, Detroit great. Today. It's Thanks great so to much. talk to you. Up next, uh, we are talking about America and Metro Detroit continuing to become more diverse, but segregation of the places we live remains and lingers. Why is that? We're going to speak with an expert who studies those questions. It's all next on Detroit Today. Stay tuned.